Hi, you're about to listen to an episode of Borough Talks, a podcast from Borough Market. A very, very warm welcome to you. We're going to be bringing you a series of conversations around food and food culture with some inspiring guests and leading voices from the food industry. I'm your host, Angela Clutton. I really hope you enjoy listening to this episode of Borough Talks. And if you do, you can subscribe for more from us. Hello, everybody, and a very, very warm welcome to this edition of Borough Talks. I'm your host, Angela Clutton, and I'm here with one of my very, very favourite people in food and one of the market's very, very favourite people in food, who is Malika Bazoo. Hey, Malika. Hello, Angela. Thank you for having me. Borough Market is one of my favourite things in the whole world, (laughs) and I like you very much, too. (laughs) It's a real pleasure to sit and chat with you, because normally I run into you at events and launches and bits and pieces. I'm not sure we've ever actually sat down for 40 minutes and had like a nice old chinwag. I don't think we have. How do you feel about this? Well, I'm very, very excited, to be honest. And also because I get to just like fire questions at you. Excellent. (laughs) I'll try not to bore you rotten, shall I? I think I suspect that is impossible. Um, Food writer uh, and so much else, actually. And we're going to dive into it. Um, Because you're doing some stuff for Borough Market at the moment with International Women's Day coming up. Um, And... I want to sort of kick off, I suppose, by talking about that. This episode is going to go out after um, International Women's Day, 8th, 8th of March. But I think it's interesting to talk about what you're doing for that, because I think it starts to lead us into the breadth of the work that you do. I cribbed down, but I'm, I'm worried that maybe actually this is not a very good description. Food writer and culture, diversity and comms consultant. Does that start to kind of get into the breadth of what it is that you do? I think it probably does. And I don't blame you. It's fairly complicated. But really, Angela, what happened was I've had a very long career in the communications world. So I've worked in sort of PR and communications in quite senior strategic roles for the best part of 23 years. And about six years into that, when I was a lowly sort of account executive, I decided to indulge my passion for teaching myself um, how to cook Indian food with a food blog. So I'd actually qualified as a journalist. So I had a a master's in journalism, loved writing and uh, really wanted to teach myself how to cook Indian food. So I thought I'd write about the trials and tribulations of that in a food blog. And that got me into food writing. And I did those two things in parallel. The food writing is very much a passion project um, and something I did a little bit on the side and not making much of an income from it. But my day job is very much as a communications Mm. consultancy um, and a consultant. And so, you know, as I evolved, I ended up sort of writing two cookbooks, writing for the Evening Standard, doing lots of writing which led to commenting. And in the pandemic, I know it sounds like a lot, but in the pandemic, I literally brought those things together. Yeah. Yeah. And I was unemployed. Yeah, I had a spice startup, which like most startups, wasn't paying anything. <laughs> and I needed to make a living. And I thought, well, I've wanted to commercialize this interest in food and this passion for communications, bring those things together. And of course, we're talking about 2020. We're talking about, you know, Black Lives Matter. We're talking about that lid just being lifted off all the inequities and systemic challenges and problems in power structures. Um, And so I got talking about culture, cultural appropriation, diversity and inclusion, the lack of representation in many industries, including food and publishing. 
And uh, so here we are. We are here. I'm still doing food writing, uh, not as much as I would like, but I do a lot more food commenting and yep. broadcasting now. And, and the BBC you know, my... Good Food podcast. Obviously, this is, you know, the definitive food podcast, obviously. Obviously. But, but in, I... in a hypothetical situation where somebody wants to listen to any other food podcast, <laughs> they, could, uh, they could catch you on the BBC Good Food. They can catch me on BBC Good Food. That's right. That's quite a new development for me and it's all very exciting because I've never presented a podcast before and obviously we love yours more I hope they're not listening to this <laughs> clearly <laughs> but you've highlighted you know, so many things I do want to kind of make sure we touch upon in our conversation today um, but I think one of the things and, and, and your, your session for um, International Women's Day for the market is to do with personal brand isn't it and I have to say Malika I think until you started talking about these things I, I, you know, I had always really thought of brand as being about brands, about you know Marks and Spencers or you know, bar market itself, rather than about an individual who's working in the food industry as being a brand. And you certainly opened my eyes to thinking about things a bit differently. Talk, talk, Talk to us about about your take on all that. Sure. I mean, I so what I do for the food industry and hospitality is I bring a lot of my learnings from the broader corporate sector and what I've learned about organizational strategy, business strategy, you know, commerciality, communications, and I apply that to the lives of my peers effectively. Um, and one of the things I did notice is there was a real miss in this understanding of personal brand. Now, what is personal brand in food? Effectively, if you're a uh, washing powder and you're sitting on a shelf with lots of other washing powders, why should anyone pick you? So it's a combination of attributes that make you unique. People think of you and they think of these attributes. People talk about you in a certain way and link you to certain things when you're not in the room. And all of that gives you visibility in what is an incredibly competitive world where there's loads of people all fighting for attention. Mm. So attention is at a premium, right? We're being bombarded with images of food, writing, advertising, newsletters. I mean, Substack has mm. exploded. Yeah, and I'm getting so many more Substackers. How, like, do you, oh, how do you feel about that? I think it's great, but, you know, it's simply shifting a problem, isn't it? If you haven't been able to capture a community on other social media channels, unless you get to the bottom of what your personal brand is, you're going to struggle with the same thing on Substack. You're just going to get lost. And so I talk about these things. I run a food writing course for the British Library. Mm. I have done for about four years now. And uh, one of the first things I make my group do is write an elevator pitch. About themselves. About themselves. Wow. So I'm in an elevator with you. I press three, you press five, and you turn and you smile at me and you say, what do you do for a living? Or who are you? And you get literally a tiny amount of time to tell them who you are and what you do. If I ask you to do yours, do you promise not to ask me to do mine? Uh, you're going to absolutely have to do yours, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Consider this your warning. <laughs> 
Um, but you know, it is it is that important to nail it to a tiny something and. We start with that because how do you know what you're going to do if you don't know your destination? And that's your destination. It's like you plan a holiday. You need to know where you're going. You don't just wake up in the morning and start walking, you know? Uh, so but you say that, Malik. I feel like quite a lot. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm a food writer. You started in this bit, bit of you know, your work as, as a food writer, having come from obviously from a wider comms background. And I feel like a lot of us, maybe this, maybe it's different if, if you know, for a chef or someone who's running a, a, a food startup or something. But as a food writer, I feel that quite a lot of us sort of did wake up one morning and just kind of go, mm, yeah, do you know what? I, oh, I love this. I'm interested in it. I'd like to kind of see what I can do. And it doesn't, so often it doesn't feel like something which is really planned. Do you know what I mean? Tell me about it. Right, Sounds yeah. a bit like my life, if I'm honest <laughs> with you. Not, none of my plans seem to work, apparently. <laughs> That's gone well for me. Um, and I agree with you. And the important thing about elevator pitches and personal brands is that they can change. Mm. You know, I used to have a very different personal brand three or four years ago, and that's completely evolved now because, of course, that's life. Yeah. You know, we don't stick to a something, but, you know, it's not necessarily about what it is you're writing about. It's more who you are as mm. an individual. So in my case, I like to be thought of as Malika Fanbasu, you know, <laughs> that's a core brand value. I like to be known as someone who takes no nonsense. You know, I'm very much, I don't suffer fools very gladly. You know, there are these little attributes that mm -hmm. all add up to what is a Malika Basu or an Angela Clutton. Yeah. And I think we have to get to the bottom of that because in, increasingly what's happening is to be able to reach people like editors and, you know, podcast hosts and publishers and that you know even for food products where this is a borough market borough market podcast and you have so many incredible brands mm. and you know to be able to tell your story in a way that makes an emotional connection sets your brand apart is incredibly important and what i say about that is a product is worth nothing if it if it doesn't sell mm. and a brand is what makes a product sell mm. It's so interesting and it's such a different perspective on it. And I think and I think one which so many of us need to hear and keep on hearing. I saw that you did an Insta post uh, today, maybe yesterday, about International uh, Book Day. World Book Day. World Book Day. Get, World me, get book my internationals and my world's confused. <laughs> World Book Day. Um, and as you say, you did your two books. What years did those books come out? So the last one was Masala, um, which, by the way, is a word that means a mix of things. So I thought there was a little double play on yeah, that. Um, published in 2018 by uh -huh. Bloomsbury. And the one before that was 2010, and that was HarperCollins. Yeah. And in between, of course, I've had, you know, a, a long career in the corporate world. Yeah. So, uh, so yes, so I keep being asked when you're going to do your next one, but I think I'm slightly done with cookbooks for now. You were, yeah, was, when I say this post was really interesting and very interesting for anyone to read who may you know, have dreams of doing a cookbook because... Well, it's hard, which you know, it probably isn't going to put people off because a lot of things are hard and should be hard. But exactly as you were just saying, that getting them sold is very hard. It is a very, very crowded field. And you know, books that can break out beyond and actually kind of you know, get off those shelves into people's kitchens is it's tough. And, and only a very small number do it. And it was very interesting seeing your post. And again, what you just saying that people say to you, when's the next book? When's the next book? But you feel this is not part of where you're headed at the moment? 
Sadly, it's just not something I can take on. And that's because cookbooks are enormously hard work. Um, And they need you to invest time and energy. They don't pay incredibly well. And, uh, you know, I'm now a single woman, divorced, um, a pandemic entrepreneur, and I have to be very judicious about where I put my time Mm -hmm. and the ROI it brings to me. And, you know, I'd love to, I'm not going to say no, never. I'd love to write another cookbook, but the numbers need to add up. And that was part of my post is you really have to ask yourself why. You know, there is an element with of bad timing with my last cookbook. And, you know, it was a very busy year for Indian cookbooks. And there's a part of me that feels like I've learned so much more since. And perhaps my third cookbook might be better accepted and it would be very different. Um, but that would be a pure ego exercise. And I've written two cookbooks. It's been a phenomenal um, experience. It has given me credibility and a platform to do some incredibly exciting things in the food world. And I think for now, I'm just going to be grateful about that. Mm. I'm going to take that and be happy with that. Yeah, and, and that's kind of okay too, is it? To take a moment to kind of look at what one has achieved and done and think, yeah, that, that was great, but maybe that's not for this next phase of who I am. Um but it's, you know, again, it's this idea of a brand and, and, and food brands. And I'm interested, Malika, in your take on the, the different things about those positioning, uh, how one positions oneself. I don't want to preempt the conversation you're having uh, on, on Wednesday, but how those uh, the goals and the activity of those kind of positionings change, whether or not you are thinking about a food writer or somebody with uh, a food startup you know, selling products or, or a chef or a restaurant, or all, the all food industry. But what, what are the, the different challenges across those? One of the big challenges and issues I see a lot is that food writers and also brands, they just want to flog their product. Mm. So food writers will flog recipes and the product, you know, the, these products will just go, here's our amazing chili jam, you know, here's our incredible blah. And it's like, well, why is that relevant? What's the context? Like, why should anyone care? <laughs> And I know that sounds really brutal, but we live live in a brutal world, you know, like it's tough. It is tough for a reason. If it was that easy to have best-selling brands and products out there, everybody would be doing it. And so it's really important to ask yourself the question, so what? Why should anyone care? Now, there are lots of Indian food writers who are better chefs than me. They perhaps spin a much better paratha or a roti. And, um, you know, they're probably more talented. You know, they've been cooking for a lot longer than I have. But it's about the package. Mm. How are you packaging that up in a way that feels like people can relate? So it has relatability. It has, you know, it inspires. It's aspirational. It touches a nerve. So this idea of an emotional connection, we talk about brands like, yes, so, you know, beers and wine and products that you buy, chocolates, you know, these things, loads of marketing spend go into these products because we, they create marketing campaigns that actually make an emotional connection. Greg's, Greg's is a great example. You know, people from 
all sorts of backgrounds go and eat at Greg's. Yeah, yeah. Why? You know, Borough Market. Borough Market has a real emotional connection with lots of people. You know, I know people who, you know, will go in and they'll buy something and they'll treasure it because it's from Borough Market. And that's because these brands make an emotional connection. And I think the biggest mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs make, and I would count food writers as entrepreneurs <laughs> too, is that they're just thinking about here's a recipe, here's a product, here's a recipe. And that alone does not cut it because, yeah. you know, you look up something like a pickle or a jam and there's millions of them. But what sets you apart is a unique set of attributes that people actually remember you for. Yeah. And that is what we need to nail. Did you think like this when you entered the Fuge world? 100%. In fact, I spotted a gap in the market. I spotted a gap in the market for a modern face of Indian cookery. And we hadn't had one since Mother Jaffrey. And I spotted that gap because I worked in communications and I thought, where are the busy professional women of my generation that are cooking Indian food and, you know, talking about Indian food in a way that feels relatable? And there weren't any. And in India, people love me. You know, I have a huge following amongst Indians because I was one of those people that came in and actually represented a slightly different mm. generation of women. And even my mom, you know, my mom is a very busy woman. She's an actress. She leads a very full professional and social life. And even her and her friends, they're cooking very differently nowadays because li their lives are more in sync with mine here. They don't have a lot of help at home. They're smaller family units. Things are getting expensive. They often use gadgets and devices to speed things up. Housewives in India, like it's a traditional thing, they will often use masses of shortcuts to get food on the table because you're feeding mm -hmm. a family with lots of different, you know, food tastes and requirements. You might have, you know, a widowed granny who is a vegetarian. You might have a child who only eats meat. You know, you might have a husband who will wants fish at every lunchtime. You know, so how do you then do that? So there was so there was a real sort of gap that I spotted in just making Indian food accessible mm -hmm. and uh, simplifying it in a way that we were used to in India, but the West was still kind of mm -hmm. grappling with. And so I went into it very intentionally. That's another word I use to be intentional and it worked it worked for a very long time for me and in fact like after I did my first cookbook you know the, every time there were opportunities and brands wanted the kind of busy working woman face of Indian cooking you know I got called up so I had some incredible opportunities because you know it, people were either chefs or they were working in food whereas I had a very very solid corporate job it was you know, it was tough. It was demanding. I was up early. I was home late. I had two young children. I was MD of a corporate division at a global PR consultancy when I was 36. And I had a three-year-old and a five-year-old and a team of 16. Okay, so busy sort of doesn't really cut it, is it? Yeah, so, I mean, it yeah. was full on. And, you know, I would say there are certain sacrifices. I've had to contend with the fact that when Instagram was growing apace, you know, I couldn't post every day because yeah. I was in an office. You well, know, it was I was just about to ask you about your sort of journey through food time-wise, really kind of charting that progression of social media becoming so much more a part of everybody's lives. Because I, uh, well, tell me, when, you was, when your first book came out, social media wasn't something which was a, a huge part of that 
launch that book or, or was it? Was it already? It wasn't. It uh, was very reliant on traditional PR. Yeah. And so I'd love to get your take from having been in the sector and with your fabulously intentional and analytical mind on it, having seen social media become so important. I mean, I have, you know, really been on that journey. So yeah. I understand social media. I've had to advise clients on it, you know, devise campaigns for people on social media. And I built my brand very intentionally on social media. Um, social media is very much about feeding the beast. So you have to understand the algorithms. You have to understand what it demands of you and then work that. Um I have not been so good at working the algorithm, mainly because it is quite time consuming um, and I struggled with some of it. I struggled with watching myself eat. I struggled with filming myself. I find it quite hard to watch myself in a camera and I'm getting better. I've been dipping my toes in it a bit more this year. Um, but, it, you know, it is hard. It is very hard work and it is not for everyone. I talk about this a lot, that social media is not an inclusive space especially Instagram. And it's a bit of a travesty that, you know, so many brands became incredibly reliant mm. on social media because it's not for everyone. And algorithms change. So where you could rely very heavily on free, like a free platform to communicate your products and your wares and your brands. Which is how Instagram felt. Yes. But the guy who commercialized Facebook and made it into the money earning um, business that it now is was parked in Instagram to help commercialize it. Because why should any business give you free commercial value? I keep asking people this. Instagram doesn't owe anyone anything. Publishers don't owe food writers anything. These are not charities. These are not social enterprises. You know, they're businesses. So you have to you have to basically prove that A, you can sell or that you're putting something back, which is what happened then with paid partnerships and paid social. So, you know, without budget, it is very hard for brands to then build themselves on social media. And and that's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, how often do you post on Instagram? As often as my clients allow, very randomly. I don't have any structure or plans. But is that, would you, you surely wouldn't advise other people to 100% never. <laughs> okay. I know all the theory, but unfortunately I am very busy and yeah. there is no method to my madness on social media. I post from the heart. I post as I feel like. Um, it tends to be quite learnings based. So it's less about the recipes now. I'll do the odd recipe if I'm cooking something, but it tends to be more the method rather than a specific recipe. I only write recipes if someone pays me to. Um, and uh, it tends to be more, yes, very intentionally about the work I do. So to promote my profile, my um, status, my commercial work mm -hmm. on Instagram. Let's talk about, you touched on something there about um, recipes and being paid for and about you know, work. And this is work. And let's talk about value and the value that we do or don't put upon ourselves and the expectations of being paid for the work that we do because well certainly when I started I worked for free I you know, had to run that up I absolutely did and I don't think I would have got my start if I hadn't but I see too much people who assume that you, one will do things just for you know exposure or 
an, a, 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 pre, a presumption of not not necessarily needing to put a value upon things. Do, do you see that? I absolutely do. And I agree with you. You know, when I started, I did loads of things for no fee, but I could afford it. I could afford it because I had a well-paid corporate, mm. you know, job, um, part-time and full-time. I think it is shocking in today's day and age, especially where social mobility and DNI mm. and we're talking about these things, um, that businesses and brands will develop marketing campaigns without a fee attached. Even if nominal, there should be some fee attached. And I routinely tell um, tell event organizers, well, what's your fee? And mm. they're often quite startled. Mm. And they say, oh, it's a profile exposure, new business opportunities. And I'm like, yes, that's all additional. What's your fee? So it's a very bad, a very poor commercial model to build any events or any commercial campaigns with no fee attached to them. So that's the first thing. The second thing to say is doing jobs for free, it shouldn't be a blanket ban. So it's more nuanced than that. Mm -hmm. And that's because when you're starting out and when you're growing your network and your community. So another thing I'm going to be talking about or I would have talked about already <laughs> when this podcast is out is the power of networking. Ah, excellent. Now, networking isn't just bringing people and say, could I have half an hour to pick your brains, right? It doesn't work like that. It's very much a two-way process. So the other person needs to feel that by meeting you, they're going to get something out of that relationship because busy people don't have a lot of brain to be picked at. You know, they're just busy. The brains are very stretched already. But a lot of them, including me, I love being helpful. Mm. So it puts you in a slightly awkward position. But when you're building your career and you're starting out, it is incredibly important to build those networks and doing certain things for free can help you do that. And it again creates memorability. It makes people remember you and think of you when opportunities come up and you never know where that might lead to. Also, if you're promoting something, if you've got a book, you've got a podcast, you have a substack, you know, you're, you're, you've just created a product brand. Doing things for free can be incredibly useful as part of a well thought through and intentional um, marketing strategy where you're growing, you're spreading your wings a bit. And of course, there'll come a time where you'll see the rewards of that, that labor come back. But just saying, I will not do anything for free is a terrible mistake, actually. Mm. And people need to really start being more sensitive and more nuanced in their approach. It's interesting. Um, let's take those words sensitive and nuanced and talk about another aspect of uh, your work over the last few years because I had the, um, the the good good planning in my life and my fortune to be at one of your sessions that you did for the Guild of Food Writers around language, really, and the use of language in a in in particularly in a cultural context, but wider than that as well. Um, and it was a brilliant session and uh, I certainly learned a lot from it and came away feeling, I'm not sure I felt, I didn't expect to come away feeling empowered and I absolutely did. Um, and it was part of a conversation saying, so what year would that, that would have been 21, I guess. It would have been 21, 21. that's right. And there were a lot of conversations happening at that time when they were around uh how how people do use language. I'd love to get your take about how you feel over the last few years, that conversation. Well, does it still need to be had? How much of that engagement work is still, still alive, I suppose? 
I do remember that session, Angela. Yes, and I remember us having a good chat after it. Um, what I did in 2020 is I created a very short session called Culture and Mindset. And it was the first time the British Library had asked me to run a food writing course. And, you know, George Floyd was happening. It was an incredibly difficult time for lots of people. And this lid that I talked about earlier had been lifted off some of these important conversations about power and equity across lots of sectors and segments. And I use that as a moment to start talking about things like cultural appropriation, um, decolonization of the palette, um, unconscious bias, diversity, equity and representation. So in my years of food writing, I'd noticed a lot of systemic challenges and structural problems that were getting in the way of equity and diversity and inclusion. Um, obviously, I'm not an academic. I know where my skills lie and academia is not one of them. <laughs> and, but I spoke to a bunch of people and started doing my research and sort of read up around it. And what I created was a very simple session that empowers people for positive practical change. Mm. So understand what... And it really what, did. Like, yeah, as I said, you know, I came out sort of just feeling... Well, just I, I mean, I, I knew that I was a little bit of a better food writer for having had that hour and a half with you. Well, it was, you know, it was very instrumental in the growth and the rise in my profile, if I'm honest with yeah. you, because I think, you know, lots of people were caught like rabbits in the headlights. They had no idea what this all was. And it was terrifying. Like people were literally terrified of doing the wrong thing mm. because the food community, we're not evil people. You know, no one wakes up in the morning going, yeah, let's just really piss some people off today. So and also working with ingredients working with the food of other cultures. It's, it's just in our DNA, isn't it? It's how we mm. work. So there was an, an incredible amount of appetite for it, sorry. Um, <laughs> and then I took that and the session, really, it had a life of its own. I ended up training over 800 people, not just in food, but also publishing, um, sustainability. I went into technology, um, a lot of trade organizations, a lot of big publishers, actually, um, and not just in food, but broader publishers, like a global audiences, uh, some American organizations, the Irish Guild of Food Writers oh, as well. And so it took on a life of its own because it was very much off the moment. It was part of the zeitgeist mm. at the time. And I guess what's come out of it is, and it's really lovely to hear that you felt empowered because, you know, I wasn't doing it to be angry or to give people hassle. It was just a way to empower people mm -hmm. to make this positive practical change. And the big thing that's happened since is I did a bit of sensitive, sensitivity reading um, in sort of 2022 and also 2021. But there are now these sensitivity and also authenticity readers and some of these issues and the, the challenges with language and labels and wording, these things have become mainstreamed. Mm. I also trained a lot of editors. So, you know, I trained Waitrose, I trained eye to eye media. Um, and so I know a lot of my Instagram following may not be three million people, but, you know, there are a lot of editors who follow me and... Um, I heard, which was lovely, I've heard that one of the publishers, they discuss my newsletter on a Monday morning at their weekly meeting, which is just oh, lovely. Cool. I love your newsletter. Oh, thank you. I that's encourage true. everybody to sign up. Oh, because it's a, well, it's, it's a really fun read and I always learn something. Oh, I, well, that's great. I absolutely always come away thinking, hmm, I hadn't quite thought about it quite like that. 
Well, that's really great. What I've done since is I've broadened it out. So what I do now, and, you know, I should change the culture diversity comms thing, but essentially I do culturally relevant and sensitive communications, and that covers things like cultural appropriation, DNI, um, you know, all the things that are happening in the woke world. Everything that is insensible seems to be chucked into a bucket called woke nonsense. So I've taken it upon myself to actually uncover what is woke nonsense versus what is just pure nonsense. <laughs> it's a good challenge to set yourself there, darling. <laughs> it is. And, you know, I write about much broader things. I mean, food is always obviously there, but I write about broader things, broader things like what, you know, what being cancelled is all about, mm. using the example of Jeremy Clarkson mm. or racism on TV. Um, you know, I've just done a piece on, you know, true influence, what that means. So just kind I of love that bigger. One. I love oh, that. thank you. Really, really good. And I think I find, because I know you come, we well, don't come from food, but you know, obviously you've been working for a long time within food. And so you, I, I feel when I read it that I'm getting a, a, a food peers perspective but somebody who also has a lens which is so much wider as well and for, I think what makes it stand out and why I enjoy it so much and why I save it every time is that it's, it's that marriage those two things it's, it's not insular no and it's not meant to be because you know as people in food we're not insular you know we live in a world and there are things happening around us I mean even it was interesting writing Borough Market Strategy last year actually because Borough Market doesn't function in a vacuum you know there are all these things happening around the world you know in the mm. world with important conversations about the future of the planet the future of people what's happening within the community and the economy geopolitics and all of these things make a difference and have an impact on us. And even as food writers, like no matter who you are, you're not immune from the pressures and, you know, these sweeping changes that are happening around us. Mm. And, and, and I think if, we, if we're not aware, we're not doing ourselves any favours. I really don't think we are. And you become less and less relevant, yeah. even for products, you know, doing silly things. Like, I hope I've made sure that the Asian salad dressing will never make an appearance again. <laughs> I've single-handedly eliminated... <laughs> <laughs> the, um, you know, the pulling together of 48 different nations yeah. into what is a generic... I mean, what is an Asian salad dressing? It drives me mad. Do you think that those mistakes are much less likely to happen now? Than they yes, were? they are. Yeah. I mean, there have been some lovely examples of Waitrose changed the name of its lime leaves product on the back of the discussions we were having. Yeah. I trained over 200 people at, the, at, the, at their organisation. Um, you know, those mistakes are people are just more aware of them. Mm. I mean, if you think about how many publishers and editors mm. I trained as well, the people are more clued up mm. and they know that they may not all have the the answers, mm. but there are people who do. And mm. those sensitivity readers, those authenticity readers are, you know, there's a whole profession. There's a whole group of people who mm. are doing that now. And it does work. Yeah. Um you touched on the borough market strategy, um, and so I don't want to delve into the strategy because I uh, think we should also think about your experience of being at the market to do it. And I was wondering about what were the things that you just dis discovered about the market through doing the strategy and spending time there that you didn't know before? What surprised you? What touched you? Well, for a start, I was slightly blown away by the breadth and range of products that are available ah, there. So I would have automatically assumed that it was not, you know, there were no 
racially diverse or eth- what we would call ethnic products uh, available at Borough Market. And I've been surprised since, to be honest. There's rare there. You know, you could even in the mainstream veg shops, you could find things that are very good for the sort of food I would make, Indian food I would make. I've been going back to Spice Mountain a lot. Spice Mountain is great. Great yeah. for, I, in fact, bought some Salim peppers because I want to do a bit of um, cooking from Africa. So I wanted to make suya um, spice powder, which is their Nigerian barbecue. And also, um, and also, so I go in and I buy things that I don't think people realize actually just how expansive the product range is and the offer is. Um, it's good to keep reminding yourself that. Isn't it? I'm very guilty, I suspect, of being a, like a bit of an exocet missile when I go to the market. And I, like, and, I, and I hit my places that I hit. And I think I need to take, to take a moment and sort of almost rediscover what what else is, is kind of going on. Definitely. And um, the second thing I would say is, you know, it, a really important discovery for me was that it is expensive for a reason. Mm. The value play of it was really important to me. And, you know, I wouldn't do a, you know, full food shop, weekly food shop at Borough Market simply for the logistics. Um, but this idea that you can actually go in and buy something seasonal, you know, or good, and it can feel like you've actually contributed to the story and the value that Borough Market adds, not only to the community, but also the traders who are incredibly passionate people, great fun. Um, they are great fun. <laughs> they really are. I think, because I think it has to be a certain kind of person who decides to be a market trader, because it is hard and it is cold and tiring and all the rest of it. Absolutely. But although I don't know what, the, I don't know what they must have thought of me sort of being drafted in to run a trader conference for 90 people. I just sort of started it by saying I'm the boss here. <laughs> Essentially, it's this is this is it, it's my show. I bet it, they loved it. You speak when I ask you to or I tell you to, which was a bit naughty of me. I was only doing it half in jest. But you know, I think they're a nice bunch who are genuinely passionate and I've shopped at Borough Market for a long time because I've always lived not far from it um, on the Northern Line. So I've shopped there for years and years, but immersing myself into the products, the value systems, the personality of the place was really wonderful. Yeah, it, it always feels like a such a privilege to kind of be able to spend that time and to, to experience those things. But then I also think that people who just just kind of come down and just on a Saturday afternoon and just hang out, I think it's it's there it's there at that sort of top level as well. You can sort of feel the atmosphere, especially I think at this time of year when it's becoming just into spring and people can just like hang out that little bit longer. It's uh, has a very particular energy. It does, it. absolutely. And my, my kids love it. I have to give them strict budgets when we go in there because they're like, yeah, they're like kids in a candy store, literally, because they love food and drink as well. <laughs> but, you know, Diwali, when I um, when I did a sort of reel for Diwali, I came up with a recipe, mm. which is chart, you know, essentially street food. And I did that out of um, winter veg. So we were hitting, what, October, November time. And I bought all the ingredients at Borough Market apart from Bombay Mix. Okay, that's not bad. Absolutely everything. Yeah. And and all of it was seasonal as well. Yeah. How good is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm going to be bringing a new wave of <laughs> guests and customers to Borough Market as well as an even, even more of a fan than I used to be. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, the market's even more of a fan than it used to be. I think it's absolutely lovely to have this conversation with you, Malika. And I never, ever, whether it's 
40 minutes like this, or if it's two minutes at a book launch, or you know, a, an online session that you're running, I never fail to feel a bit revved up and inspired from having sort of been in your orbit for a little bit. It's really true. I always feel like somehow, metaphorically, you always give me a bit of a shake. Yes, that's not intentional. No, Sorry, no, no, we've no, talked I'm... a lot about being intentional. No, 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 I mean in a really good way. And I feel that's almost kind of what you've done for the industry as well. You've given us all a little bit of a shake. Yes, and I'm delighted to. And, you know, it's very pleasing. That's so nice to hear, firstly, Angela. And someone called my energy infectious one and I, once and I said, well, I hope it's the sort you want to catch. <laughs> so I hope it's a sort of sort of infection. You, they also said that to me in COVID. And I was like, oh, I don't know if this is a good thing. <laughs> this could be terrible. Um, but I do think that, you know, if I could spread some positivity and betterment, And I share a lot of my struggles. I do that without being overly sort of, you know, overly moany about the whole thing. I like to honor my struggle, as a friend of mine asked me to do, because if that helps people do things differently or feel more buoyed by that energy and those learnings, then why not? Yeah. Malika, thank you so much for joining us today. An absolute joy to talk with you. Thank you for having me, Angela. That was really fun. Lovely. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back with more Borough Talks soon. A reminder that Borough Market is now open seven days a week. For those who can't make it down here, you can still enjoy the best of Borough at Borough Market Online with nationwide delivery. You can head to our website for more information, subscribe to our newsletter. There are lots of recipes and features on the Borough Market traders.